had a dream about this place. episode 17 of ghost stories for the end of the world hope you're good uh sorry for the delay for this episode i kind of um needed to rethink some aspects of it and tweak it a little bit before i uploaded it um so we'll crack on in a second but i just have a little bit of housekeeping at the top of the show here so first the remaining Hollywood Ghost Stories episodes, we did the first one towards the end of last year, if you remember. Um, the next, uh, however many of them there are, I forget at the moment, I think there's six or seven more to come. Um, they are going to be Patreon only. Um, I was trying to think of like a compromise between keeping the main show free, or at least on a, a pay what you feel thing, and kind of rewarding the the crew of heroes who kept the faith while I went off to um, meditate in the desert for six months earlier this year. I think um, the best compromise I, I've come up with is that to kind of uh, have those episodes be Patreon only uh, as a thank you to those guys for uh, basically keeping the feed live really with their donations and stuff like that and allowing me to buy the remainder of the research stuff that I needed to finish this series. So if you want to journey with me to kind of explore the life and times of Jared Leto in the next Hollywood Ghost Stories, then you will have to go to the Ghost Stories for the End of the World Patreon and put a few pennies in the basket. Um, I'm also thinking about setting up a Twitter account for the show, but I'm still, eh, I'm still kind of stubbornly enamored of the idea of keeping this show as close to a kind of underground video nasty kind of vibe as it's possible to get in the online world nowadays. Uh, so I feel, I don't know, I feel like Twitter would somehow cheapen the aesthetic of what we're going for. Um, I always liked the idea of, of this show as just being some weird thing that people just suggest to each other on the internet and then they find it that way. Um, I don't know. I might, I might have a think about it though, or I might continue to think about it. Um, but if I do set it up, it will purely be uh, used as a place to post new episodes, um, and maybe gather some more listeners, and mainly just to discuss interesting sandwiches that I make and eat. That's really it. That's really it. Um, so yeah, um, if nothing else, though, it might be a good way to let people know I'm alive, you know, if or when the show next goes on a break. I don't know. I don't know. But in the meantime, uh, please enjoy my specially curated Spotify playlist of things that I listen to while I'm p 
putting episodes together and the email is always there if you really want to drop me a line about something uh links in the show notes as always oh um the music this episode is kindly provided by my pal mute branches um who is an incredible artist who has never met an instrument that they couldn't transform into a kind of portal into the next world um, um and the tune tonight is called the sunken restaurant and if you like the haunting ambience of it and there's absolutely no reason why you wouldn't if you are a human being with a soul right then you can check them out on uh Bandcamp and spotify again i'll stick some links in the show notes and uh give it give them a listen check them out you won't regret it this mini series has kind of snowballed into something much bigger than i initially anticipated it was just supposed to be ostensibly about the mafia and its role in the kennedy assassination but obviously we have expanded way beyond that now um and we've gone on far longer than I, I thought we would in terms of just the the amount of time that we've covered. Um, so I ran the numbers and I think there's going to be about six parts in total with a short epilogue, maybe a 45 minutes or so to kind of tie up some of the loose ends. Now, I hate to be one of those guys who tells you to go check out my other stuff all the time. Uh, I am conscious that I did a lot of that last week, but here might be a good place to pause and go and listen to our episode about Alan Dulles before returning, because we're in the 1950s now, and the 1950s was his decade, essentially. And what I thought we could do here is kind of unmoor ourselves from uh, a strict um, recital of dates and freestyle it a little bit and discuss the CIA and the role of intelligence and maybe expand on some stuff we've already talked about before about conspiracy theories and, and such to help us understand why the idea of a domestic presidential assassination isn't as wild an idea as the gatekeepers of official narratives would have us believe. Uh, what I hope we get here mainly is some sense of how it felt to be in a position of power in America at that time, to be amongst the elite at the dawn of the American century. So we'll explore that sense of limitless possibility, but one that was tempered by paranoia, rabid anti-communism, the essential secrecy of the deep state, and the poisonous effect that this had and continues to have on American society. We can't understand anything about what's coming in this series if we don't appreciate the forces that were shaping the ideas of the people at the very top of America's uh, power structures. So if you're ready, then I'm ready and we'll begin.
So as we've previously said, the creation of the CIA effectively formalized what we can think of as a pre-existing shadow government, uh, the entrenched networks of businessmen and diplomats that we discussed in, in previous parts. The guys who would gather intelligence and gossip while traveling the world and already informally influencing US policy. Um, well, they were effectively brought in-house in a kind of public-private partnership with the creation of the CIA, which was a pure exercise in consolidating America's imperial power and protecting the ruling class by essentially giving it a paramilitary outfit that was beyond the reach of democratic oversight or legal accountability. Now, during the Alan Dulles episode, we, we talked about how his breed of public private intelligence operative had kind of cannily anticipated that the Nazi and fascist governments in Germany and Italy weren't really long for this world. And in a period where the economy was becoming ever more globalized, the traditional colonial structures were increasingly outmoded. Dulles was a creature of the Ivy League and the country club you know, of um, drinks and lunches where worldly affairs were discussed between men. And the CIA was created in the image of men like him. And his big thing was diffusion. So instead of a single point man who could be taken out or a well-defined imperial machine that could be effectively resisted and dismantled, the aim was to extend American power through economics and culture and networks of influence that spanned the entire globe. Uh, the CIA would be one of the tips of the spear here, but because of its charter and American law, the agency had to advance the goals of American capital invisibly, or at least invisibility was something it aspired to. Uh, because of the scandals of the 1970s, it's very easy to forget that for a very long time, Dulles's strategy of invisibility actually kind of worked uh, through a combination of propagandizing in the media, uh, more on that in a second, and outright lying to the White House and to other federal agencies uh, and even to other CIA officers. And throughout the 50s and up through the 60s and beyond, the CIA has always aimed to be kind of like carbon monoxide filling a room um, everywhere and lethal and completely invisible. But we could do with thinking here about James Angleton's description of the agency as being a mansion with many rooms. And that is because plausible deniability is one of the organization's overriding concerns. Everything they do is highly compartmentalized. So the agency will not do anything that it can't deny later. And in an outfit where information is available strictly on a need-to-know basis and secrecy is everything, this is how you end up with assets working completely in the dark, uh, independently of people working for other sections of the US national security state, sometimes in conflict without even being aware of it. So think about how the Pentagon and uh, the CIA were back in different rebel groups in the Syrian war and how these groups would frequently clash with each other on the ground. Uh, but this need for, for secrecy and plausible deniability is overwhelming, even if it's self-defeating for American foreign policy as a whole. 
And it's also one of the reasons why the CIA prefers, wherever possible, to contract operations out with only a small crew of CIA officers being fully appraised of the entire picture. A good example, historically, of how this compartmentalization and the intelligence state's ability to control the narrative, uh, a good example of how that works in practice is to look at the activities of the OSS at the end of World War II. Now, we covered the Nazi rat lines and the creation of the stay-behind networks across Europe, but to really appreciate the full kind of staggering horror of the machine that the US secret state was constructing at this time, uh, we'll zoom in on Reinhard Geller and use him as an example of what was happening on a, a broader global level. Now, Gellan was a Nazi spy chief, uh, highly intelligent, and as the Reich collapsed and allied forces swept across Germany, um, he was understandably obsessed with uh, his self-preservation. And to this end, when he and his men surrendered to US intelligence in Bavaria in 1945, he had a very interesting offer that caught the attention of Alan Dulles and Bill Donovan and General Eisenhower. And simply put, in exchange for his freedom, Gellan would establish an outfit in West Germany to conduct counterintelligence operations against the USSR. And a key condition of the deal, which was a condition that he insisted on, was that his American paymasters never ask how he obtained any information that he sent their way, um, nor were they ever allowed to question the methods that he used to obtain that information. They were better off not knowing, is basically what he said to them. Now, what would become known as the Gellan organization or the org to people in Langley? Gellan staffed that with guys that he could trust, which meant, of course, Nazis. So as well as letting him escape prosecution for his wartime activity, the OSS also extended protection to his key guys. There were 350 members of the Gellan organization in the first few years. And as the Cold War progressed and its operating budget increased, the payroll ballooned to over 4,000 covert agents and a fake front group called the South German Industrial Development Center disguised its activity and sources of funding. And the organization thereafter became an integral part of NATO's stay behind networks. Now think of it this way, Reinhard Gellan, Nazi spy, was effectively the station chief for a CIA branch office in the heart of Cold War Europe. Germany's federal intelligence service that they still have today began here with a nucleus of fascist anti-communists operating with the sanction of the CIA and the US government. So what we need to bear in mind is that the US didn't so much defeat the Third Reich as um, they did prune its more excessive tendencies and then absorb the most useful parts of its war machine as a bulwark against the Soviet Union. And thanks to the CIA and the US government's ability to control information, to manipulate the historical record, the sheer scale of the collusion between the US state, particularly its business and intelligence communities, and the remnants of Nazi Germany is still only vaguely known to most people. And this is how you end up with a situation where Nazis came to command key posts in NATO and former members of the Nazi party played major roles in West Germany's government for decades after World War II. Uh, so, for example, 
100 of the 170 justice officials in West Germany were Nazis. And data indicates that about 55% of interior ministry staffers had been part of the Nazi government and they used their positions to hide historic war crimes to protect themselves and their friends um, and also uh, helped create the rat lines that um, enabled hundreds more Nazis to escape to South America and elsewhere around the world. So far from being crushed by the forces of liberal democracy, as we're always told in school, it's fair to say that liberal democracy helped the Third Reich to disperse all around the world after the end of the Nazi state as such. And US Cold War policy was shaped by people who believed that fascism was a necessary even important element of the fight against communism and getting key people from the Reich set up in particular geopolitical hotspots was seen as a worthwhile strategic objective to pursue. Now, there was one rather interesting hurdle that uh, the US state had to clear if it was to sell uh, its people on this concept of the need for communist containment. And it's the fact that Joseph Stalin was actually kind of seen affectionately in the U.S. Um, at the end of World War II. And the USSR in general was seen as, rightly, the nation that had broken the back of fascism at Stalingrad. 30 million Soviets had died to save the world, essentially. I have um, an interesting excerpt here that I'd like to read to you from... Domenico Lucerdo's Stalin, The History and Critique of a Black Legend. Quote, Outside communist circles or the communist-aligned left, despite the escalating Cold War and the continued hot war in Korea, Stalin's death brought out largely respectful or balanced obituaries in the West. At that time, he was still considered a relatively benign dictator and even a statesman. And in the popular consciousness, the affectionate memory of Uncle Joe persisted the great wartime leader that had guided his people to victory over Hitler and had helped save Europe from Nazi barbarity. The ideas, impressions and emotions of the years of the Grand Alliance hadn't yet vanished when statesmen and foreign generals were won over by the exceptional competence with which Stalin managed all the details of his war machine. Included among the figures won over was the man who, in his time, supported military intervention against the country that emerged out of the October Revolution, namely Winston Churchill, who, with regards to Stalin, had repeatedly expressed himself in these terms, I like that man. On the occasion of the Tehran Conference in November 1943, the British statesman had praised his Soviet counterpart as Stalin the Great. He was a worthy heir to Peter the Great, having saved his country, preparing it to defeat the invaders. Certain aspects had also fascinated Avril Harriman. And there's a name that screams at you, that leaps off the page as soon as you see it. So I'll read that again. Certain aspects had also fascinated Avril Harriman, the American ambassador to Moscow between 1943 and 1946, who always positively painted the Soviet leader with regard to military matters. And this is what Harriman said of him. He appears to me better informed than Roosevelt and more realistic than Hitler. To a certain degree, he's the most efficient war leader. End quote. Harriman, of course, we will remember of Brown Brothers Harriman fame. Harriman, for his part, 
was one of the six wise men, as they were called. And these guys were a group of East Coast foreign policy officials who actively shaped the the contours of the coming Cold War. They pushed um, the necessity of containment uh, for the USSR. They helped to set up things like NATO, the World Bank, and they also heavily pushed the Marshall Plan as well. So basically, these guys are like the real-life Lali Lule Lo, the wise men. And together with their outriders in the Western media institutions, they helped to create a sea change in how we, in the um, liberal capitalist West, viewed uh, the USSR. Not that this was particularly hard, you have to remember. And William Bloom offers some very good insight on why um, a, working with the architects of the Holocaust after World War II was completely acceptable to Washington policymakers, and B, why the public generally had very little problem with turning against um, the Soviet Union. Quote, by the end of the Second World War, every American past the age of 40 had been subjected to some 25 years of anti-communist radiation, the average incubation period needed to produce a malignancy. Anti-communism had developed a life of its own, independent of its capitalist father. Increasingly, in the post-war period, middle-aged Washington policymakers and diplomats saw the world out there as one composed of communists and anti-communists, whether of nations, movements, or individuals. This comic strip vision of the world, with righteous American supermen fighting communist evil everywhere, had graduated from a cynical propaganda exercise to a moral imperative of US foreign policy. So therefore, armed with this moral imperative, nothing was off the table if it served the cause of anti-communism and enriched the elites of the US. Now to circle back to the CIA, we can see how extensive its reach into the worlds of academia and media is by taking a look at the relationship between Henry Luce and Alan Dulles. Now, Luce was the founder of Time magazine, and he was the guy who actually coined the term the American century. And like Alan Dulles, he'd supported U.S. intervention in World War II and formed the Council for Democracy to help influence public opinion. After World War II, Luce grew increasingly hardline in his politics and threw in fully with the anti-communist cause. He believed that real journalism had a moralistic slant to it and that it was his responsibility to support the expansion of American influence abroad. And to this end, he turned both Time and Life magazine first into unofficial campaign rags for Eisenhower's presidential run. And then he pivoted to laundering CIA propaganda through his outlets, um, ramping up the red baiting and exaggerating the threat posed by the USSR. And on top of this, he gave CIA officers access to time life press passes and travel funds, providing them with, you know, cover for their overseas missions. And one of these CIA officers may well have been Henry Luce's own wife, Claire Booth, 
who uh, she was serving a stint as the American ambassador to Italy in the 1950s. And she played a direct role in subverting Italian politics and funding anti-communist activity while ambassador, coordinating with US and Italian intelligence. And she was also rumored to be actually having an affair with Alan Dulles all throughout this decade. Talbot describes this period as the Dulles Imperium, the model basically, of everything the CIA has done since, where assets and outright agents are kind of seeded throughout the key areas of US institutional power in order to further the objectives of the agency. The um, Ivy League universities were full of Dulles's personal friends like um, McGeorge Bundy, who was a Harvard dean, and Prescott Bush, who was a, a very big wheel at Yale University. And then in addition to shaping the educational curriculum at these schools, Dulles cronies also served as recruiters for the agency. And we mentioned the Paris Review before, you know, the um, progressive literary magazine founded by a CIA agent called Peter Mathieson, which is a very good example of the agency's um, fluidity, I suppose you could call it. And Dulles also had a bunch of journalists at the New York Times and Washington Post in his Rolodex, while some of America's brightest medical professionals uh, owed their careers to their participation in the newly created and top secret MK Ultra program. And just as a side note, I promise you, we are getting to MK Ultra eventually, don't worry. <laughs> but people can become CIA assets without even realizing that they are being used as such. So think of all the artists and journalists who are funded by agency front companies and charities without ever being aware of where the money is really coming from. And then like in the field, the agency relies on a string of middlemen and laborers who may complete a task that benefits a much bigger operation and live the rest of their lives never knowing what they were a party to because they only played a very small part in the overall scheme and there was no need to clue them in on what they were actually doing. Now think of all the mechanics basically and pilots and warehouse workers who were helping move cook during Iran-Contra or like the opium farmers and drug couriers in Afghanistan and Laos who only had a very vague idea of who was actually financing and buying their dope. And then at the other end of this spectrum, someone can find themselves becoming the central figure in an agency operation and either never find out or find out way too late that they are being used. Um, now, for instance, just throwing this out there, for example, a lonely and hyper-narcissistic young Marine with delusions of making history of turning the wheel of history all by himself. For, for instance, he could be cultivated as an agency asset without once comprehending that his entire life was being manipulated from the moment when he met his handler unwittingly to the moment when he's standing in a book depository window and watching the president get his head blown off down the street. And all this secrecy and compartmentalization and hidden covert activity, inevitably that breeds paranoia and suspicion among CIA operatives and then the wider society that they operate in. So the 60s are just replete with examples of radical 
political groups tearing themselves apart because they thought that they'd been infiltrated by the CIA. They were usually right, but sometimes they were wrong and the paranoia was just too much to take anyway. Um, and then in-house at the CIA, James Angleton is an example of a spook who bought fully into this clandestine lifestyle. And he ended up turning the agency upside down and inside out, trying to find KGB malls and hidden codes in internal agency memos while actually missing the real malls in the process. So people like Kim Philby. And when you factor in that much of what the agency does is already outside the law, uh, and that it requires a certain cold-bloodedness and a willingness to exploit people, an ability to befriend and betray them and kill them even without a second's thought. Well, when you factor that in, you can't help but begin to wonder what kind of people find this work appealing. Who are these people? And I think that Douglas Valentine has a very good line on this. So I would like you to consider what he has to say here. Quote, the guys who go into law enforcement relate more to the crooks they associate with on a daily basis than the citizens they're supposed to protect and serve. They are corrupted. The CIA is populated with the same kind of people. Nelson Brickham, the CIA officer who created the Phoenix program, told me this about his colleagues. And now this is a quote within the quote. I have described the intelligence service as a socially acceptable way of expressing criminal tendencies. A guy who has strong criminal tendencies but is too much of a coward to be one would wind up in a place like the CIA if he had the education. CIA officers are mercenaries who found a socially acceptable way of doing these things and, I might add, getting paid very well for it. And of course, the difference is that while most criminals run the risk of arrest and public disgrace, CIA officers and assets in general rarely have this problem. Officers, and this is the people actually running assets um, and overseeing operations, or officers are the products of institutions shaped by ruling class ideology. They usually come from the Ivy League or else from families with solid political and social connections. And on the rare occasions when a CIA officer from a poor or minority background begins to rise through the agency, it's precisely because they've demonstrated that they have bought wholesale into the, the guiding ideology of the CIA as an institution. So the officers are effectively licensed by the state to break the law. And they in turn select for discretion and moral flexibility in their assets. The only concern a good CIA officer should have is whether or not a given course of action is beneficial to the agency in some way. And no, that I say agency, not necessarily, you know, the United States. The CIA does not represent the interests of most Americans. It represents the interests of capital. And that's why so many CIA officers and bosses are from these immensely privileged backgrounds. It stands to reason then, from their point of view, that whatever benefits the agency, i.e. themselves, inevitably benefits the ruling class and the capitalist system, which is what they think constitutes the best of America. And this goes for 
other intelligence agencies as well as the CIA here. But we need to emphasize that it doesn't even matter if intelligence operations that break the law and result in absolute catastrophe for the people involved actually achieve what we might recognize as something of value. Because sometimes the raw, unbridled demonstration of power is the whole point. Now think of the people locked up in Guantanamo Bay who are very obviously innocent, but who are still looking at another 20 years in a cell anyway. And a lot of them will never get out, even though they haven't actually done anything wrong, or at least there's not enough evidence to demonstrate that they've done something wrong. And think about the spy cops bill in Britain, in my country, that seems explicitly designed to throw up a gigantic middle finger to the public or anyone with a conscience, you know. It's important to the smooth functioning of these security services that people like you and I get the message that this is just the way of things and the security state reserves the right to take away your freedom or kill you on a whim. Now, when pressed, the spook will justify breaking the law by talking about abstract notions of the greater good or national security. Um, they argue that they keep the world safe by doing things that we don't want to, the things that we are too comfortable and pampered to even contemplate doing. That's how their logic operates. And the politicians who guarantee their budgets publicly justify the existence of the CIA or MI6 or whoever in a way that, that's not too dissimilar to Lisa Simpson in a weird way. When she talked about the rock that keeps tigers away, Remember that episode? But the difference is, of course, that Lisa Simpson was being sarcastic while your government and my government earnestly want us to believe that spooks need to plant Semtex in the pawn drawers of mentally ill teenagers in order to prevent the next 9-11. So paranoia and suspicion are the order of the day in the intelligence community. But what about the agents and the assets who really operate out on the fringes. So I'm thinking here of the shakedown artists, the contract killers, the stay behind partisans, the drug runners. Well, the usual atmosphere of mistrust and anxiety is amplified to the nth degree. And in an environment like that, where people are given a license to kill, when the right combination of hubris and entitlement and suspicion paranoia collide both within and without very often you see something close to derangement start to happen and for examples of this we can see that it happened with the contra cocaine traffickers in the 1980s it happened with mi5 officers and informants in northern ireland and with um, the spy cops who infiltrated leftist groups in britain and ended up you know fathering children with uh, the women they were targeting for having the nerve to protest the building of a, a nuclear power plant or something. Any time, in fact, that you see a story about a terrorist attack in the West, inevitably buried somewhere in that article will be a reluctant admission that the attacker had been connected in some way to some branch or another of an intelligence outfit, uh, connected to handlers who clearly have long ago abandoned all sense of obligation to whatever ostensible mission they had. And instead, they've just let their pet jihadis or white nationalists off the leash. 
or else deliberately provoke them into attacking so that they can get a, a good arrest and make a good case. You also see this derangement on display in how the FBI has made entrapment part of its standard operating procedure, um, encouraging their targets you know, to, to build uh, bombs and go on shooting sprees so that they can bust them further, further down the road. Um, I'm almost certain that the Brabant killings and parts of the Detroit affair are an example of this same derangement taking place, but that's something we'll have to go deep on another time. But I think that if this show has demonstrated anything so far, it's that if you give the wrong kind of people the full protection of the state and enough darkness to operate in, they are capable of absolutely anything. And the beauty of compartmentalization, the genius of having these networks and cells and individuals operating on their own is that you can always disavow them if they do go rogue. You can always chalk it up to a few bad actors tarnishing the otherwise unimpeachable reputation of the agency. And in fact, this is embedded in the institutional fabric of the CIA and other um, security and intelligence outfits because they were created by and for the people who have been operating in the dark for their own common interests for generations. Now, I want to talk a little bit here about how we can use this to help us understand why conspiracies or uh, structural deep events, as Peter Dale Scott calls them, well, they don't necessarily need a centralized top-down leadership giving orders, and they don't need frequent meetings in smoky back rooms where detailed plans are laid to invade this country for oil or kill that politician to stop a particular political movement. Um, an argument you get a lot from people who don't buy that the CIA or the ruling class is actively malevolent is that if conspiracies were real, somebody would have spoken about X or Y by now. Now, ignoring the fact that there are actually multiple examples of people who are a party to deep events who very often do try to whistleblow and are either sneered at and labeled cranks or else ignored completely by the media, we also have to understand that for the people at the center of these events, um, the real power players, they come from a world where collusion and keeping secrets is as natural to them as breathing. Um, you don't make millions of dollars without being able to keep your mouth shut. And I like this quote by um, Carl Oglesby, which I've, I've paraphrased it slightly here, but I think you'll enjoy this. Quote, the arguments for a conspiracy theory are often dismissed on the grounds that no one conspiracy could possibly control everything. But modern history is not the invention of an esoteric cabal designing events omnipotently to suit its ends. On the contrary, a multitude of conspiracies contend in the night. Clandestinism is not the usage of a handful of rogues. It is a formalized process of an entire class in which a thousand hands spontaneously join. Conspiracy is the normal continuation of normal politics by normal means. And this also gets uh, another very important point, which is that even inside what people call the deep state and what I'm starting to think of more as um, 
the side of the ruling class that we've decided it's unacceptable to talk about. Um, well, ultimately, we are looking at an elite that wants to get rich and consolidate their power, not just at our expense, but at each other's. I think there's no greater testimony to their domination of society as it's currently constituted that the very mild suggestion that they might make secret plans that involve breaking the law to achieve their goals is dismissed as wide-eyed conspiracism by a thousand conspiracy debunkers and media professionals. And speaking of which, there is an interesting tendency that I've noticed on the part of people that we could describe as being on uh, the soft left. So if you were to tell them what I've just said, the odds are good that they would agree with at least 80 to 90% of it. However, they will throw in a very weird qualifier, which is that while the CIA is a corrupt and dysfunctional organization, it is still subject to oversight by the White House, by the executive branch. And they have to show results or they risk having their budget cut or being dismantled and reconstituted as something else. And this is what I think we can call residual liberal brain poisoning. Because I think that these people can't quite bring themselves to accept that the CIA is more like a shadow government than a standard intelligence agency. It has access to its own paramilitary outfits, its own supplies of weapons and funds, its own politicians and lobbyists who subvert the democratic process all the time in America and across the world to the benefit of the agency and its friends in business. By its very nature, the agency has no incentive to tell the truth about anything to obey any orders it is given, to fully submit to any kind of inquiry or investigation, or to reveal the full extent of its influence and power. And it is therefore free to falsify and obfuscate, to bribe and bully, and to kill, to protect itself and the people that it really serves. And when you process that, you realize that the president and most elected officials serve at the discretion of the CIA, not the other way around. And it took them a while to reach that level of influence, like a decade or so after its creation. But every president post-November 1963 has understood exactly what the stakes are. All of this is by way of trying to kind of help us understand the psychology of the intelligence state and how it might have been thinking as the 1950s began. Because America was, of course, now the colossus bestriding the globe, as the saying has it, and Cold War fever was ratcheting up. And in 1950, North Korean forces invaded the South and thoroughly embarrassed the, the newly formed CIA whose brightest minds had no idea that the attack was coming. 
And as usual, Alan Dulles became the beneficiary of chaos in the wider world and was named deputy director in charge of clandestine operations. So at stroke, the ability to wage secret wars and carry out covert assassinations with the aim of defeating communism and installing regimes favorable to US interests while opening up new frontiers for US capital, all of that was handed over to a guy who was at the center of the overlap between the public and the private sphere. So you've got Foster Dulles and Alan Dulles, and they are working under President Eisenhower as Secretary of State and CIA Director, respectively. And they were ideally placed to kind of shape US foreign policy at the very beginning of the Cold War. And C. Wright Mills argues that the election of Eisenhower in 1952 represented the, the triumph of what he called the power elite. That is, the networks of wealthy and influential people who came together to occupy strategic command posts in the U.S. state and who used these positions to enrich themselves and their friends. And people like the Dulleses, uh, Wall Street lawyer types with very close ties to the banking and financial sector, well, they serve as invisible elites, especially during the Cold War, uh, moving between public and private sector positions and kind of knitting together people from high finance, defense contractors, military figures, politicians, especially influential journalists and news outlets and more. And this would create what was later called the permanent war economy. Now, it's a cliche to say this nowadays, but it is true that war is very good for business and the Cold War would end up making billions for C. Wright Mills' power elite. We'll also remember that Alan Dulles's allegiance lay more with the Yankee side of the U.S. oligarchy. So the Northeast Ivy League types who were intimately connected to the financial and intelligence and political circles of Western Europe, um, especially Britain. They saw Europe uh, and its stability as a top priority, and they all advocated a very muscular liberal internationalism. And they would say that they believed in this internationalism because they cherished democracy and free trade between all peoples and yada, yada, yada. But you don't really have to read between the lines too much to recognize that most of this shtick was all about shoring up Anglo-American hegemony. European stability was an obsession of theirs because they identified so strongly with the values of Europe's ruling classes and they wanted America to take as active a role in world affairs as the empires of Britain and France and Germany and Belgium had. These were the guys who successfully pushed for American in intervention in World War I and they were the networks of businessmen and diplomats that we've mentioned already, the kind of embryonic intelligence state, the guys who would go on to form the Council on Foreign Relations. Way before there had even been a CIA, there had been the CFR, which met to discuss you know, global affairs and publish think pieces in their magazine Foreign Policy. The CFR was funded by some of the richest people in the world. So we're talking Rockefellers and Carnegie's. And of course, 
Alan Dulles was a very key player. He sat on the security and armaments group in the 1930s, uh, which was one of four incredibly secretive panels that discussed US domestic and foreign policy and would issue classified memos to the US State Department. So if Alan Dulles and his buddies at the CFR were going to further the expansion of American empire and consolidate the position of the CIA and make a lot of money in the process, they had to attempt to find some kind of accommodation with the ascendant cowboys in the Southwest. Now, there was no danger of Dulles and friends losing their position here. Well, not exactly, but uh, Alan's thinking was that it'd be better to have everybody across the whole of the US ruling class on the same page and pulling in the same direction. The oil lobby, obviously, has been influencing American policy forever. You know, it has a formidable amount of control over affairs of state, so it would behoove any self-respecting CIA boss to keep them on side as the Cold War proceeded. Now, what I'm going to try now is to offer a version of how the CIA and that broader network of uh, Council on Foreign Relations types incorporated the cowboys into their design and how the cowboys reciprocated these advances. Haroldson L. Hunt best embodies the clash between, you know, the brash, adventurous elite of the Southwest and the more uh, dispassionate, the more cool and clinical elite of the East Coast. Hunt was an oil tycoon and one of the richest men in the world. And he was based in Dallas and he was known to perform a daily ritual that he called creeping, where he'd crawl around his office on hands and knees for hours at a time to develop what he called superior brain function. He was a member of the John Birch Society, and he was one of the group's biggest donors, as well as a staunch supporter of the white supremacist Minutemen organization. He engaged in overt, radical right-wing propagandizing through funding a couple of right-wing radio shows, Facts Forum and Lifeline. He was also a hardcore pre-millennial dispensationalist. He believed that Jesus Christ would eventually unite heaven and earth under one domain and rule for a thousand years. And in classic kind of American wasp style, Hunt cleaved to a variant of premillennial dispensationalism that talked up a coming final battle between godly American capitalism and the satanic communistic empire of the USSR. The inevitable victory of the US, he thought, would trigger the rapture and Judgment Day, followed by a millennium of divine rule. He also ran his own private intelligence outfit, the International Committee for the Defense of Christian Culture. Would it surprise you to learn that Haraldson was breastfed until the age of seven? And in addition to this, although Hunt was a Republican, in his mind, he equated all East Coast and Ivy League elites with liberalism and therefore communism, because in his mind, liberalism and communism were exactly the same thing, uh, even if these people were in fact diehard Republicans, uh, the fact that they had come through the Ivy League structure kind of thing made them liberals. And Hunt was so far gone 
that he even considered the Eisenhower administration to be dangerously lax on the Reds, and therefore he was equally suspicious of anybody who worked in the Eisenhower administration, i.e. people like the Dulles brothers. Now, Hunt was at the forefront of a radical push by the ultra-conservatives of Texas to tilt the balance of power in the Republican Party away from these traditional uh, Northeast elites, those players in the orbit of outfits like the Council on Foreign Relations. He wanted to kind of uh, bring the party more towards the hardline right and he also wanted to kind of supplant the influence of what we today call moderate Republicans. Now, in actuality, there was very little difference between what the moderate Republicans and the ultra-conservatives believed in terms of material politics, you know, such as how the economy ought to function and how communism ought to be confronted. The main difference was really one of aesthetics, you know. So it might seem odd, but... Hunt also had a lot of time for Lyndon Johnson, who was a Democrat politician. But Johnson had proven himself as a very reliable point man in Washington. And he'd voted time and again to protect the wealth of the Southwest Cowboys and the cappers of, you know, the natural gas and oil industries. And beyond that, Johnson was part of the inner circle of a group of powerful private individuals in Texas who composed what's come to be known as the Sweet AF Group or the 8F Crowd. Now, this is from an article in the April 1976 edition of Texas Monthly magazine. Quote, Every day, George R. Brown walks from the lobby of Houston's First City National Bank and into the old Lamar Hotel, where he takes his afternoon nap. He might easily be mistaken for a congressman, perhaps, or a partner in some regionally successful accounting firm. In fact, George Brown was at one time the most powerful man in Texas, and some have ventured that he was even the most powerful man in the United States. The hotel suite where Mr. Brown will nap is numbered 8F. It is a place that should be known as one of the secret capitals of Texas, a true historical site. There, George Brown and his late brother Herman, co-founders of Brown and Root, used to meet with the likes of the great Jesse H. Jones, builder, publisher and financier, New Deal government lender and the reigning Mr. Houston for over 50 years. Judge James A. Elkins Sr., a remarkable banker lawyer, often referred to in those days as the secret government of Texas. Gus S. Wortham, founder of the largest insurance company in the South. And later, Lyndon B. Johnson, longtime beneficiary of the Brown political largesse and president of the United States. These men, who came to be known as the AF crowd, called the shots on most major business and political developments in Texas during the 30s, 40s, and 50s. Johnson had first been elected in 1931, and for all intents and purposes, this is the moment when the Cowboys came to national power and began their rise over the next 30 years. The sweet AF crowd 
helped to create what was effectively a natural gas and oil cartel in Texas, bringing tycoons from across the state together in a vast network to fix prices and finance politicians who they could do business with. And they had a huge amount of influence over press outlets like the Houston Chronicle and the Post. Their members and associates also included people like Robert Anderson, who served as Secretary of the Navy and Secretary of the Treasury in the Eisenhower administration, James Eastland, who was Chairman of the Judiciary Committee, Bobby Baker, a lobbyist and fixer for Lyndon Johnson, Clint Murchison and Sid Richardson, who we met last episode, and a host of other oilmen, lawyers, bankers, defence contractors and politicians like Johnson and Richard Russell. When it came to especially useful guys like Lyndon Johnson, even the sweet AF members who didn't kick money directly into his campaign war chest made themselves useful in other ways. So, for example, Lawrence D. Bell, who was the owner of Bell Aircraft Corporation, where he gave Lyndon Johnson use of his helicopters to make impressive entries at campaign rallies. So we talked a little bit about Dallas last episode and to expand some more on the city and on Texas more generally. Remember that in addition to oil, Dallas was where much of the military industrial complex and a thriving new financial sector was growing during and after World War II. And in fact, between 1940 and 1941 alone, defense contracts added $90 million of investment to the city. In 1953, a quarter of all manufacturing jobs were in the aerospace industry, about 90% of which came by way of defence contracts. And with its tradition of anti-union activity and segregation and low-tax, low-regulation policies, the city became an attractive place for aspirational white-collar professionals, so scientists and investors and academics, And it was a crucial nexus point in the post-war economic areas of war, oil, and banking. Now, as the Dallas middle and upper class increased in wealth and influence into the 1950s, radical libertarian economics grew in popularity. And at the same time, many of the Southwest cowboys began relaxing their previously die-hard isolationist stances with regard to American expansionism overseas. This is probably partly the influence of them connecting with that, you know, more traditional Northeast kind of elite. There was money to be made, basically. So pretty soon in the offices of Dallas oil companies, political lobbying firms, defense contractors, resource maps of the Middle East and South America and Africa began to cover the walls. This is, of course, the inevitable turn you take as a class once your domestic power base is shored up. You you look for virgin territory to expand into. And it's into this picture, Texas, Dallas, right at the beginning of the Cold War and the Atomic Age, that a handsome young war hero called George Herbert Walker Bush steps in 1950, the same year that Alan Dulles was made deputy director of the CIA. I'm sure you're aware that there is pretty good reason to suspect that George Bush's spook connections go back 
much further than the official record of his life admits, which says that he was chosen as director of the CIA in the 1970s precisely because he was a civilian with no pre-existing ties to the agency. On its face, we can dismiss this out of hand because his family was extremely close to the doses. And that whole Eastern Wall Street, Yale, Skull and Bones, Council on Foreign Relations scene, which made up the core DNA of the agency. Um, a couple of episodes back, we detailed, you know, the, the financial schemes that were used by the Sullivan and Cromwell law firm and Brown Brothers Harriman to launder Nazi money and fund the Reich's war machine. There is simply no fucking way that the Bush family was not also intimately connected to the CIA from the very beginning. It's safe to say the Bush dynasty has always had ties to the heart of the US deep state's intelligence and financial operations. And they have, to be honest, played a central role in its evolution. Bush worked for a company called Dresser, which relocated to Dallas in 1950. And Dresser was bought by the Harriman Brothers banking firm in the 1920s. Uh, after Harriman, with the help of Prescott Bush, bought Dresser, it began to expand rapidly into oil and natural gas, and it held two extraordinarily valuable patents on a couple of pieces of technology that would assist in oil drilling and extraction. Now, my knowledge of oil drilling is sketchy to the point that I would call it non-existent. So I, I kind of had to look up these uh, pieces of tech that they earned. Um, so a production packer, according to Wikipedia, is, quote, a standard component of the completion hardware of oil or gas wells used to provide a seal between the outside of the production tubing and the inside of the casing, liner, or well wall wall. So basically, it's supposed to protect the pipe uh, that is drawing the, the oil out of the ground. Uh, it's supposed to protect it from corroding or bursting. Um, the other pattern turned out to be exactly what it sounds like, which was a coupler. Uh, a, literally, a coupler just couple separate pieces of pipe together to facilitate a more efficient, long-distance gas extraction. Naturally, if you hold two patents like this, then you can basically set your price for access to them. So although George Bush found his way to the job at Dresser through his dad, we should probably mention that after his time as a naval aviator in World War II, where he put in work in the intelligence section and was shot down over, and I'm going to fuck this pronunciation up, but he was shot down over Chichijima, uh, Bush attended Yale University. Now, Yale is known as a major feeder school for the intelligence community. And somebody with Bush's pedigree and connections, someone who was a recipient of the Distinguished Flying Cross, no less, well, they would make a fantastic hire for the fledgling CIA. By the 1950s, Dresser was fully integrated into the American war machine, uh, buying up a variety of manufacturing companies that supplied the US military in some form or another. Prescott Bush had installed a guy called Neil Mallon to oversee the company, uh, despite his lack of experience in either the fossil fuel industry or as a CEO. 
Malin's true value came in his connections to the same Rockefeller and Carnegie networks that Alan Dulles was a part of. And one of his main concerns after the move to Dallas was the ultra-conservative insurgency within the Texas GOP. While Malin accepted that there was a global communist conspiracy to pervert American Christian values, he couldn't quite bring himself to go along with the more fanciful ravings of people like Haraldson L. Hunt. And in fact, Malin was extremely alarmed by the tenor of the ultra-conservative discourse. He wrote a very panicky letter to Prescott Bush shortly after he arrived in Dallas, um, expressing uh, his concern about this. Quote, A situation is developing here that could render sterile the conservative viewpoint. Hunt wishes to stigmatize honest dissent and destroy the machinery for objective consideration of honest problems. This movement is no small localized affair. It is growing daily and the money expended and the propaganda expounded is considerable. End quote. So Malin set up a group called the Council on World Affairs to try and counterbalance the extreme right-wing ideology of the ultra-conservatives without entirely alienating them. The, um, the Council on World Affairs was basically the Council on Foreign Relations in miniature. It was a Yankee establishment outpost in Dallas, offering a forum to moderating voices amongst America's conservative intellectuals and business leaders. And in 1951, Malin held an organizing meeting. Now, Russ Baker describes some of the names of the attendees here. Quote, the group included Fred Florence, the founder of the Republic National Bank, whose Dallas office tower was a covert repository for CIA-connected ventures. T.E. Braniff, a pioneer of the airline industry and member of the Knights of Malta, a Vatican-connected order with longtime intelligence ties. Fred Wooten, an official of the First National Bank of Dallas, which would employ Poppy Bush in the years between his tenures as CIA director and vice president, and Colonel Robert G. Story, later named as liaison between Texas law enforcement and the Warren Commission investigating the assassination of President Kennedy. Another attendee was General Robert J. Smith, who as a colonel in World War II had played a role in the secret 1944 transport of Nazi intelligence agents. So I suppose it goes without saying that moderate voices, as now, is a relative term here in Dallas in the 1950s. And with Ike's election, Malin now had a direct line to the White House via the Bushes and Alan Dulles. And Dulles even visited the Dallas chapter of the Council on World Affairs uh, to cement this new accommodation between the Cowboys and the Yankees. And it's also possible that Dulles was using this trip to get the measure of George Bush. And just as a side note here, um, I'm going to refer to George as Poppy, his nickname, uh, from here on out to avoid any confusion. So anyway, as soon as he was made deputy director, Dulles had begun to experiment with using front companies as a way to create slush funds for CIA black ops, uh, much like he'd done for his clients back in his Sullivan and Cromwell days. All the better to kind of circumvent legislation that was supposed to regulate CIA activity. And at some point in the 1950s, the early 1950s, Dulles brought Poppy fully on board with the agency. And in 1953, 
Poppy founded Zapata Petroleum, which would become a very convenient cover for CIA ops in the Caribbean. More on that in later episodes. Uh, around the same time, Malin's work at the Council on World Affairs had helped kind of thaw his relationship with the good old boys in the Dallas oil industry, um, who were already kind of re-examining their isolationist stance. Malin then introduced these good old boys to Alan Dulles, which unlocked another source of funding for CIA activity in Latin America and completed the alliance between the Yankee and cowboy factions of the power elite. So we'll leave the CIA and the Dulles boys here for now, and we're going to pivot to JFK, and we're going to have a quick look at his life after World War II. Now, put simply, Jack's political career was bought and paid for by his dad, Joe. He was elected to Congress in 1946 on a platform not too dissimilar to the kind of vague, wishy-washy promises of hope and change that we've seen from centrist and centre-left Democrats right up to the present day. And after JFK's victory, Joe Kennedy was even quoted as saying that with the money I spent on this election, I could have got my goddamn chauffeur elected. Thanks to his, uh, his personal charisma, and his brother Bobby acting as like his underboss and campaign manager and his dad's money. JFK's political rise was basically assured. It was his to lose. Um, he moved into the Senate in 1952 and his politics were about what you'd expect for a young liberal Democrat of his generation. Some of the stuff he supported was okay. And it was even, some of it was even worthwhile, like conservation bills and what have you. But other positions were adopted out of strategic necessity and just straight cynicism, like his ambiguous relationship with the civil rights movement and his non-committal stance on Joe McCarthy. Now, privately, Kennedy was supposed to have absolutely despised him, but Joe Kennedy was a major supporter of McCarthy's anti-communist crusade. And JFK was aware that a decent percentage of his base in Massachusetts was wild on the guy. So if I can be honest, I've kind of been dreading reaching the JFK sections of this series because like, when you think about it, you know, every last minute of his life has been picked over in forensic detail. So I doubt there's much that I could add to his story, really. So I'm including this here mainly as a way to kind of keep us up to speed with where he was uh, relative to other narrative threads. But one thing that I do think is worth looking at, and this might be because I was raised Catholic, so I kind of feel some empathy here, but I do find his fascination with death pretty interesting and the way that it seemed to follow him around it's quite eerie. It has something of the high weird about it. And I can understand why people become obsessed with the JFK assassination from a more kind of esoteric angle because of all the strange coincidences in terms of fate of his life. They do add up when you really look into them. So as a kid, he'd had measles and a whooping cough and scarlet fever. 
and he'd been hospitalized a number of times. He had chronic back and prostate and stomach issues. His older brother, Joe Jr., was killed when his plane blew up over the English Channel in World War II. His sister, Kathleen, also died in a plane crash, and two of his children were stillborn. Uh, he must have heard the rumors about his dad while he was growing up and the killers that he'd associated with during Prohibition. And then, of course, there's the story of his sister, Rose, who was born with developmental disabilities. Joe Kennedy, with an eye towards building this great political dynasty, decided that Rose was a liability and that her behavior could kind of embarrass the family and cost them their shot at entering the uh, elite spheres of influence and generational power that he aspired to. So, in 1941, he had her lobotomized. Basically, he got a doctor to drill a hole in the skull of his 23-year-old daughter and cut the link between her prefrontal cortex and the rest of her brain. Now, something was botched during the procedure and she ended up being left without the ability to move or talk. So Joe had her placed into an institution and she stayed there for the next 20 years. The other Kennedy kids weren't allowed to talk about her around Joe and they weren't allowed to visit her or speak publicly about her. And you then end up in a situation where Rose's living death hangs over the family forever after, entirely unacknowledged. Um, in World War II, JFK was in command of a torpedo boat that was rammed by a Japanese ship and sank. And this story, uh, to be fair, JFK does come out of this story looking like a genuine hero, like he was dragging injured crew members on three-mile swims to safety on small islands, uh, despite being in crippling pain himself from his own spinal issues you know, and then swim into other islands to try and scrounge food and water for his men. And then on top of everything else, Kennedy was given the last rites three times in his life uh, due to his poor health. You can find all kinds of quotes from people who knew him who all basically say the same thing, which is that it wasn't unusual for him to bring the subject of death up when he'd had a few, especially the possibility of his own end. His favorite poem was, I have a rendezvous with death. And he predicted that he wouldn't live past the age of, of 45. In fact, he even said that if he was killed while president, it would be from someone shooting at his motorcade. Alan Dulles and Kennedy met for the first time in the winter of 1954 in Palm Beach, just as JFK was recovering at the family compound from yet another back surgery. The introduction was made by either Joe Kennedy or Kennedy's neighbor, Charlie Reitzman. 
Reitzman and Dulles went back years to when Reitzman had been a client of Sullivan and Cromwell. Uh, Dulles seems to have been initially impressed by JFK, and the pair of them would pass the afternoons talking foreign policy and economics. Um, Dulles's wife, especially, was very, very taken with the young JFK. Uh, Jackie Kennedy even gave Dulles a James Bond novel as a gift, which is another strange coincidence given Ian Fleming's own connection to the creation of the OSS and therefore the CIA. And for a very short time, the relationship between Dulles and JFK was good. You know, it was respectful and it could have stayed that way. But for JFK's trip to Vietnam in 1951, now this was obviously taken before they met, but it seems to have sparked some kind of half-assed anti-imperialist impulse in him, which as you know, he found ways to better express his feelings on the topic of American involvement in Vietnam and elsewhere in the third world. Well, it would inevitably put him at odds with the Dulles brothers and the Eisenhower administration. And while Ike was claiming that America was ready and willing to support the French effort to put down the Ho Chi Minh insurgency, that if Vietnam fell, communism would spread across Asia and eventually conquer the world. Kennedy was making speeches in the Senate that said Western imperialism was as damaging for the third world as whatever it was uh, that the Soviets were up to. Dulles called on people very quickly and supposedly him and Eisenhower took to calling Kennedy that little bastard whenever he came up in private conversation. Now, how sincere Kennedy actually was about this stuff isn't pertinent here to be fair. Although I don't have much reason to doubt that he thought that he meant what he was saying. And don't forget, you know, he still ran to the right on foreign policy in his presidential campaign. So you can say and believe whatever you want, but you are still clearly constrained by the institutions that you are committed to. You know what I'm saying? Um, now, what I've been trying to do throughout this series is emphasize that it doesn't matter if you don't really pose any kind of threat to the US oligarchy or empire. You know, if you're just flexing for the press and trying to win a few extra votes or some favorable press coverage, uh, what matters is whether you are perceived by the real power players as posing a threat to the power elite. More than ever in the 1950s with Cold War paranoia and the nuclear arms race in full swing, with the Red Scare still destroying people's lives and anti-communism, the guiding principle of the Eisenhower administration and the CIA, even mildly venturing the idea that, you know, maybe the Vietnamese should be trusted to govern themselves. Well, that was tantamount to treason. So Dulles kind of went off Kennedy pretty quickly for the same reasons that he oversaw regime changes in Iran and in Guatemala and elsewhere. Kennedy offered the threat of a good example, which cannot be left unanswered. Now, sure, this Kennedy kid might only be playing at anti-imperialism and criticizing US foreign policy. But what about the next generation of politicians? What if they take their cue from him, but they aren't playing? But, you know, for the time being, Dulles was content to keep an eye on JFK and 
other politically suspect politicians and continue building up the capabilities of the CIA. He'd established closer ties with the Dallas oil set and the money printer was wearing away. The permanent war economy had been established and the Soviets were the perfect enemy to justify ever greater injections of cash into the national security state. So I think that here is as good a place as any to call it a night. Um, next episode, we're going to be dealing with some other threads from the 1950s just to kind of tie everything up. So we're going to be checking in with the syndicate and Howard Hughes, J. Edgar Hoover and a revolution that changed the world. Um, so as Fidel and Shea march on Havana, PIs and gangsters carry bags of cash to Richard Nixon, the Dulles Imperium rules supreme, and the mob decides that salvation may lie in Camelot. So we are adding more pepper to the chili by the episode now, my friends. We're, we are seasoning that steak. So get some. As ever... Rate and review us on iTunes if you haven't already and urge on friends and loved ones alike. Mark the exits, check the sight lines and don't get captured. Cheers guys and I will catch you next week. 